Kia ora, nau mai ki maranga ake ai, te kōnei ipurangi o te herenga waka Victoria University of Wellington. He kōnei ipurangi e whakanuia ana i ngā mātanga me o rātou rangahau kei te wharewānanga. Kia ora, and welcome to te herenga waka Victoria University of Wellington's Maranga Ake Ai podcast. This podcast series celebrates the depth and breadth of the university's research and the incredible people behind the research. Tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. Hello, my name is Guy Somerset and for this podcast I'm talking to Associate Professor Terry Fleming from Teharanga Waka's Wellington Faculty of Health. Terry specialises in mental health research with a particular focus on digital tools to support youth mental health. Kia ora Guy, tēnā koutou katoa, nā mihi nui ki a koutou, uh, ko Waiau, ko The Edge, te maonga, ko The Seven te Awa, ko Lancashire Watch te waka, uh, ko Pākehā te iwi, ko uh, Terry Fleming tōku ngoa. Greetings to you all. Kia ora Terry. Digital tools to support youth mental health sounds simultaneously counterintuitive. Isn't the digital world a part of the problem for most people? And at the same time, blindingly obvious, what better way to reach them than through those digital tools? So how did you come to adopt this approach? Um, I think I gave in, Guy. I think as a parent, I had young uh, children who spent most of the time on the computer or spent lots of time on the computer, and I felt like my most common statement to them was time to get off the computer now. Not, I love you, or how was your day, or time for dinner, or here I made a cake for you, but time to get off the computer now. And it was kind of that and also working as a youth mental health clinician in South Auckland with young people who were not that excited by mainstream mental health services and would wait a long time to get in and kind of realising we needed some other approaches that reached young people and that gave them choices and options. So I got involved not because I think digital is the answer to everything, it absolutely isn't, but we do need choices and options and we need to harness the power of the digital uh, rather than let it run us. How did you start to develop that? How did you look at the problem, look at the fact that they're all using digital tools and think what's going to be the point that connects them so to me good research happens in groups and good research happens with really great communities and people so I had uh, some colleagues who I really respected who were starting to work on a project like that and I got involved in the development of a tool that became Sparks computerised CBT with uh, Professor Sally Mary and a number of other people Māori computer games company called Meteor Interactive and we developed that beginning in about 2008 over time and that's that's still around today. And how does Spark work? So Sparks is a program you do on the computer. You can look up Sparks with an X online now. And you work through these seven levels. Each of them takes sort of 20 to 30 minutes. And the computer program has a guide, a a virtual guide, who's voiced by Tere Pekaihi, the uh, New Zealand actor, Māori actor, who did a beautiful job of really carefully recording how he talks to people. And he welcomes you to the program 
program and tells you what it's all about and says, this is kind of weird, you might find it a bit strange, but actually I'm going to talk to you about mental health and wellbeing and then you go into the game world, try things out in a playful way and then you come back and talk to me and if you try out the skills, use them in between, it might help you in real life. So you get this introduction uh, from a virtual guide and then you go into this game world and you have to find the bird of hope and you shoot negative thoughts and you kind of help characters work out how to talk to each other and you do a whole lot of skills that you would often do in a cognitive behavioural therapy approach with a therapist but instead of using talking uh, in a one-to-one session once a week maybe you're working through in your own time in quite a playful way. Did that open your mind to the possibilities of using digital devices uh, when you saw how developers took what you were seeking and transformed it into this different way of presenting well, that, that took some years and it was so interesting working with a computer developing company because it's different languages and it's different mindsets so we had to negotiate for some hours for every millimetre of clothing on the characters uh, if you look at the game <laughs> as a parent you can think there's a lot less flesh than there would have been normally in a computer game and you're having to work with the ideas about the therapy, the ideas about behaviour change, the kind of health thinking and the computer game thinking and that's really something we did together. We really developed that over time. And has it uh, developed further since the first iteration? Yes, so we started that back in 2008 and it became publicly available, so free for anyone with a New Zealand IP address in 2014 and it's been available since then. Uh, with small updates and changes, and there are other versions. So there's a Japanese version, there's a uh, Nunavut version that Indigenous people have been working on in uh, parts of Canada, and there's a transgender version that's been developed or tested in Australia and so on. So there's a whole lot of spin-offs. But one of the things that's really challenging is that from a health perspective, you develop something and you do a trial and it works, and then that's the evidence, that's evidence-based. Uh, it's kind of proven clinical tool. But of course, uh, with a computer program, you need to be updating and developing all the time. So from a, a computer game perspective, it's incredibly old school and kind of boring. So when I talk to young people, I always try to undersell it and say it looks like a game or it's in a game-like format rather than it is a computer game because then instead of expecting uh, a kind of health or research budget, they're expecting these multi-million dollar things, which it so isn't. It's better if you compare it to, it's an alternative to working through a workbook or possibly talking to an old lady like me. So it's not like, uh, they, you know, FIFA 21, FIFA 22, no, they can't expect that kind of well, uh, though, progress. Yeah, that's right. Those things are updated really quickly and have very big budgets. Yeah, mm. of course. And the ones overseas, have you been involved yourself with some of the ways that they've further developed them for their particular countries? So certainly we've you know we've been part of those conversations and had some input around that but mostly they've been led there. I did lead the development of one we called Sparks R which was a kind of resilience focused one where it wasn't saying hey this is to help you with depression because lots of young people don't identify as having depression. It was more about this is to help you with the ups and downs of life if you have depression or you're feeling bad sometimes or uh, you know even preparing for problems that might come along because one of the things we do as health professionals is we think that people kind of need to have a label and then they can go along and get a treatment but actually how a lot of young people use that is 
seeking help for mood, whether they were feeling really terrible and had a diagnostic label or not, really, and that's what a lot of them wanted. Who are you up against developing these? Are there lots of commercial companies that are doing this? And uh, how come these particular countries came to you? I mean, it's quite an accolade that uh, they have when there might well be other places. That I mean, it is, it is an accolade. It's really exciting as a researcher, and I don't think we ever expected it to go so well. My partner's a cartoonist, and he's been in the Rolling Stone magazine. It was a great, you know, he, we teased him about that, and I got to be on the cover of the BMJ, and I'm like, that's the researcher Rolling Stone magazine. So um, that was very successful. It was really as successful as almost any depre- mild to moderate depression intervention for teenagers at the time, globally, and So, yeah, it was exciting. There are very big commercial operators in this space and there's a real tension between uh, the commercial providers who sometimes have really exciting, interactive, frequently updated, beautiful user experience stuff and sometimes there's good clinical thinking behind those. So lots of people will have heard of Headspace and Calm. Those are two global giants. They have tens of millions of users and make extraordinary amounts of money, huge marketing. So there are those very big commercial players and then there's the often quite small, more researcher or more health service or clinically developed tools and this kind of slightly awkward interaction between these and how they kind of relate to each other and how the public work out which ones they might trust and which are good. So uh, things like Headspace, for example, lots of people find really helpful, but it's much harder to know what's happening to your data and those kinds of things. Does your research also involve assessing these other products? So there's a lot of research that we do around implementation and how do you um, make sure that people can use the tools, trust the tools, find them useful and so on. So one of the recent pieces of work myself and the team have been doing has been advising to heading a whole order, the Health Promotion Agency of New Zealand, uh, around uh, depression websites. So they have the John Kerwin campaign and depression.org and Lowdown. And they had about 10% of New Zealand accessed the depression.org website in the last year. So they're reaching a lot of people. But there's lots of challenges about how do you know you're reaching the right people? How do you know you're reaching the people who could benefit from that or need that? How do you know that you're um, supporting equity, supporting people who are underserved by services rather than just you know endlessly providing services for the best off communities uh, and so on? So that kind of implementation science about making sure that people know about the tools, they can find them, they know what to trust, it feels relatable to them and it, it feels like they can it can help them. Because one of the hardest things with depression and anxiety is you typically feel like nothing's going to help you. So you might think if you're feeling good, oh, I could do this or that or these people could help, but when you're in that space it feels like nothing's really going to help. Do you have any examples of some of the outcomes from people using Sparks, uh, how it, uh, how they have benefited from so, it as individuals? Yeah, so th- we do include measures in Sparks that kind of helps help watch that, and uh, we had a number of trials. So I did a small trial in alternative education, so those are 14 to 16-year-olds usually have been excluded from two or more schools, and lots of them had 
previously had counselling experiences, sometimes ones they didn't want because they'd got into trouble and sort of been told to go along to see the counsellor. And they said things like, I didn't think it would help me, I didn't think anything would make a difference, but actually it did. Some of them said really powerful things like, I don't feel like killing anyone now, I'm not carrying a knife anymore, you should give it to people in prison, Um, I don't get into fights with my brother anymore, I'm thinking of the good things that have happened to me and getting on with life. So some kind of quite powerful statements, um, as well as you can see the sort of numbers on, on people's mood scores changing over the from the beginning to the end. So the key thing with Sparks, and in fact with all those tools, is actually doing it. People open them, have a bit of a look, close it. It's not going to magically work. You have to work your way through it and try out the exercises and do the things. Then, then you see those changes. Do you have another tool in you, do you think? Do you think there's another product that's waiting to be there's, there's there's several that I've um, got on the go, and um, I was reflecting about whether you might ask something like that. There's one I really want to build, um, which is a tool aimed at middle-aged women. I thought maybe I should sort of target people in my own community for a change about mental health and well-being and managing the ups and downs of everyday life, and something that you can pick up and put down easily. So that's something I'm working on shaping up at the moment. We've got a simple prototype. And had some great feedback about that. We've been working on a sleep app here at uh, Tahirangawaka Victoria Uni, so that's been a really neat project. We've had engineering students need to build something as part of one of their training things. We had a little group of them working with us on mental health, and one of the things that we identified with the students and with some other youth input is that depression is kind of freaky and people often don't want to talk about it, but sleep is a kind of easier thing to talk about. So they developed a really simple app targeting sleep, which is a really important pathway in depression and recovery and mood. We went round the university sort of looking for the most boring lecturers who might uh, record a, uh, you know, fall asleep listening to your stage one stats or biology kind of lecture, um, as well as playful and light-hearted ones and fun ones. So we've got some well-known New Zealand writers from the university, psychiatrists, uh, students, admin people with beautiful accents from different parts of the world, uh, a bunch of different people, and we're in the early testing phases of that. And what will it do uh, and how much sounds a bit like a trojan horse uh, as uh, <laughs> using steep as a proxy for depression well th- um this one is at an early stage so we're still working on all that but Things like Headspace and Calm, a lot of people use them to fall asleep, so they have sleep meditations and sleep stories, but they cost one to 200 US per year on a subscription model, and students can't afford that. So, And also there's all the stuff about who controls the data. So we... We're trying to respond to this marketplace where we've got these global giants and also we've got people want things that are relatable and local. And if you build something as simple as that, you can um, change the stories, you can have competitions where students suggest people or record material themselves, you can record um, somebody's kitten purring at night. You know, you can you can keep updating and changing and iterating and making it a living a living product and I think one of the things that we're really learning in digital is you don't want to make a tool and then leave it the same forever. It's partly about having a community and having updates and so on. So 
that, um, I've just got a student who's coming on board to do a PhD and he'll sort of take on that and, and see where that goes as a kind of local development. Um, I could go on forever. <laughs> you want more? <laughs> you could um, obviously commercialise these things yourself in the same way that, as you say, there are companies out there that are selling these products for a reasonably uh, large amount of money. You've not gone down that route. Uh, can you say a little bit about why that is? Uh, I mean, it's perf perfectly reasonable for you to uh, commercialise your intellectual property with these things, but you're not doing that. Can you say a little bit about your motivation for the way that you do operate? Personally, uh, my interest is in how do we improve and enhance mental health and wellbeing in New Zealand and beyond. And, you know, maybe I could get therapy and become a bit more of a commercial operator, but I'm interested in equity and I'm interested in health outcomes. So actually the commercial need is, or the commercial drive is a challenging one with that. And there are reasons to put a price on things. Sometimes people actually use it all more if they've paid for it. And things like if you want to update it every year and have a beautiful, or more often have a beautiful user interface, actually if you can have some income coming in, that's, that's a way to manage that. So sometimes I think it is possible to think about ways to kind of balance both of those things and do that in a positive way. But you're not looking to have a Rolls Royce outside your front door? I'm not that into Rolls Royces. <laughs> <laughs> we often hear about there being a youth mental health crisis. Is that a fair reflection on the problem? I actually think it is fair to say it's a crisis. So uh, globally, not just New Zealand, but uh, we are seeing a very rapid increase in youth anxiety and depression, young people reporting symptoms. It's not just saying, hey, are you depressed? And somebody says yes. It's asking people about their mood, their ability to focus, to sleep, feeling guilty, feeling worthless, feeling like life's worth living, all those kinds of questions. And there is a very rapid increase. So since about 2010 to, in fact, just before the pandemic, you've got a doubling of distress in New Zealand and of that kind of clinically significant distress, more than doubling for uh, Māori and Pacific and Asian girls. And this kind of very rapid change, and we're seeing that in most high-income English-speaking countries and lots of other places, but, but particularly there. Is it a combination of young people being more prepared to identify themselves as having a problem and talk about it in a way that maybe previous generations didn't? They didn't see it in themselves or they didn't want to talk about it. They kept it to themselves, bottled it up. Absolutely. It certainly looks like that's kind of part of it, that people are much more willing to admit distress and much quicker to kind of label negative feelings uh, in that way. So some of it is about labelling and help-seeking and some of the things that have some really important positive sides. We don't want people suffering in silence, but neither is it helpful for uh, to sort of pathologise every negative emotion. Negative emotions are part of being human, right? But as well as that labelling and recognition or diagnosis issue, there's also does appear to be an increase in distress when you measure it in different ways. So um, things associated with like young people reporting much more loneliness, uh, that feeling that the world's on your shoulders and that it's sort of up to you to find a bright future and if it's not that you can be average or you can get an ordinary job, you have to be amazing to succeed, you have to be amazing to get a, be to rent a house, house let alone 
you know, anything else in New Zealand, uh, climate change on people's minds, kind of that sort of feeling of overwhelming world around them and individualised responses that you have to be exceptional to be able to kind of find a path. Um, as well as the other thing, of course, is the social media and internet access use. And and more, you know, there are other things that have changed. Young people do a lot less exercise than they used to. Parents are much more involved in children's growing up. Kids don't take risks and go out and, and do uh, things. They don't have as much unmonitored time. So there's kind of a perfect storm of things that kind of reinforce each other. And it's a big deal. We, we, I do think we should be saying it's a crisis. Here in Wellington, we've got about 40% um, vacancies in our child and adolescent mental health services, so they've got permission to employ someone and they haven't been able to fill the job. Uh, people are waiting months to get seen. What's the solution to that? So, <laughs> I mean, obviously it's a complex solution. You need to do lots of things, and there are lots of things happening. So you need more mental health services. New Zealand's invested a lot. This government's invested a lot in increasing primary health care. So uh, GPs, uh, services in schools, extra support within within healthcare organisations to help people. Uh, they are endeavouring to put more money into those specialist mental health services, but it takes a while to get people coming through, uh, as well as digital tools, as well as the long-term prevention promotion stuff, so early childhood, dealing with poverty, dealing with racism and discrimination and abuse, all those things are good for mental health in the community in the long term. So you kind of need a multi-pronged approach. And we have got a multi-pronged approach, but I would argue we need to go harder, go faster, do more, because actually the need is so high. Is it about money, or is there an element that there aren't enough people out there who actually want to train to be a counsellor, say, in the first place? Is there, is there the potential staff to be had? It is partly workforce, but... If you look, we have uh, more than a 1,000 young people lining up wanting to do things like psychology in almost all New Zealand universities each year, and most of them are going in wanting to help. I get phone calls or emails from uh, people most weeks wanting to help maybe their philanthropists, sometimes their community members, sometimes their coaches. People want to make a difference, and we have this extraordinary barrier about thinking about... Um, clinical roles so most of our universities are training 10 to 20 psychologists per year and there's these barriers around internships and these barriers around funding but those seem things that we can solve so uh, there are movements in that space so here at Heringa Walker for example we've got a new health psychology program which is bringing through greater numbers of people who will be to come uh, in, into those kinds of roles uh, there are other initiatives but my personal view is we need to be harnessing the power of our communities. We need to be making this a problem we solve together. We need to be really taking on a sense of vision that we can do this. We need to have local-based initiatives. We've got so many people who want to help. We could actually do it. Um, and we have got most of the pieces of the puzzle, but they haven't really been brought together. So to me, uh, digital is part of that, but absolutely only a part, and it is possible to do it. Is there the structural will there in the Ministry of Health and other organisations to bring those people who want to help in the communities to create that infrastructure? Yes, 
but also it's tricky. So people have been very busy with some other disease that's been going on recently. Partly Health New Zealand and the Māori Health Authority, so we're shifting to these very new models shortly. Partly they should provide some opportunities around those. So there certainly are people who are doing important things and there have been for some years now. So there's several pieces to this puzzle, right? So it takes a long time for some of these things to come through. So they have been and are working on important things. It had been underfunded for decades previously, so we've got challenges around that. We've got health professionals being attracted into other roles where we need them to. We overall have a shortage of health professionals, so it's kind of a wicked problem. But my view is that we absolutely should be doing more around that, and we can, and we have got the pieces, but they haven't come together in a strong enough way at this point. The peculiarities of COVID-19 and our reliance, increased reliance on the digital world as a result of it, what impact has that had on youth mental health? Uh, I could see that there might be positives, uh, as well as I can see obviously there might be negatives. Yes. Uh, have you had any inkling, any research into that? So there's, there is all sorts of research going on right now around that, as you can imagine. So lots of people reporting high anxiety, high distress. We've got lots of families and communities who've been very affected by jobs and income and health issues. So for some people it's been incredibly hard and probably increased the pressure quite a lot. And of course we've had lots of children at home and missing out on our kind of school life. And then at the same time... With COVID-19, there's an external reason to be worried or feeling bad. So actually, sometimes instead of feeling like you're the only one or it's something deeply wrong with you, having a shared reason that is kind of understandable actually can mean that it's not quite so overwhelming. So I think we, we're going to see this kind of going both ways. And certainly lots of research to say increase in distress and increase in pressure, but other studies coming through saying actually there isn't particularly necessarily an increase in ongoing depression and anxiety. Depends which communities you're looking at, which period of time, so it's, it's a watch this space really. There are many reasons why you might be quite appalled when you wake up and open your newspaper and see that uh, the Ukraine war has broken out, but uh, from a mental health perspective, do you does your heart sink when you see something like that and the impacts that it has, that you know that's going to roll out into some kind of consequences? I think, you know, it's overwhelming looking at, certainly I feel like it's really overwhelming looking at the news at the moment and, and social media and news media being at your fingertips 24-7 really adds to that. You know, growing up in the 80s, we were convinced that nuclear war could very easily happen and that felt very realistic and in other generations there's been other terrible things sort of on the horizon or actually happening. One of the things that's a little different now is you can look at it at three in the morning by yourself when you're tired and lonely and that it can kind of be ever-present in that intimate way and, you know, you could be following people people who are in the Ukraine in a dangerous situation right now and that immediacy that it that it comes. So yes, there are all sorts of big pressures in terms of the feeling of the world around you. I feel a little cheesy, but it's almost like if you're going to be that immersed in the terrible things, can we also immerse ourselves in some of the positive things uh, that are going on at the same time? Do you walk the talk? How do you cope with these things personally in terms of both what you're just talking about there, uh, the general situation in the world, and how you keep mentally healthy in the face of it, 
but also uh, particularly in terms of your own uh, use of digital? Sometimes it's, I feel like I do well, Guy, and other times it's a bigger effort. I think, you know, mental health and wellbeing is an issue for many, many people. I don't know many people who haven't struggled with mood or emotional wellbeing at some point in time, and certainly, you know, I've been in those spaces. So the things that work for me are, you know, the people around me, time with the people that I love, animals, I have kittens at the moment who keep me really happy, exercise, all those things. And actually some of those apps and gratitude diaries and using your phone for things that are good. So for me, listening to really interesting podcasts and stories is a really helpful thing, whereas I love to be up to date with the news, but endlessly immersing myself in that stuff is absolutely overwhelming. Have you had to train yourself and sit back and look at the research that you've done, the findings that you have, and say, actually, I need to start to adhere to some of this myself? Some of the things, you know, one of the things that I really had to teach myself is when you wake up at night, not picking up the phone uh, and charging your phone outside the room is a great thing that I can I don't always do, but I often do. And actually, I try not to be reading the news last thing at night and first thing in the morning before you do other things and all those kind of little pieces. And partly it's about what you, what you use it for. So sometimes I uh, have been testing out my own little app and writing stuff I'm grateful for that day and something I'm looking forward to in the future uh, and some of the things that kind of give me joy. And that's a, that does the opposite, you know, that, that's a kind of uplifting, helps you keep going. Kind of a thing. What for you is a successful outcome of your research? I'm all about it being useful in communities. So uh, when it is helping support or inform or improve health and wellbeing or improve equity, that's why you know it's publicly funded research. It's with members of the public taking part. It should be giving back to communities. You have a blog as well. Mm. Is that a recent thing? I've been doing that for a few years and what I try to do is imagine that it might be someone who's kind of interested in the ideas but doesn't isn't used to reading academic papers. So we publish findings as researchers in academic journals which are incredibly detailed and intricate and that's really important that you have these robust things. But if I was to share that with people in my family, uh, people that I I've worked with that would be kind of a bit meaningless gobbledygook like we're talking to ourselves we're talking to each other so in that blog I try to imagine that somebody was I don't know busy making dinner and the telly was on in the background and what would you say that what might be interesting to them or what would you want them if you were talking to someone in a community what would you want them to be to remember some days later or what could a first year student make of it so it's also it's going to kind of sound really arrogant, but we've had a lot of papers and a lot of uh, outputs coming out. So actually, if I get most of them down on that, you get that satisfying feeling of being able to see them rather than just having this long list of papers on your CV that, frankly, might be satisfying once in a blue moon, but doesn't really, you know, nobody's going to read that. The uh, flip side of what was a successful outcome setbacks in your career uh, in the research that you've done have you ever had to kind of pick up and start again after any particular setbacks you know I think the most challenging thing for me was the getting started part so I didn't do my PhD I didn't start my PhD until I was over 40 and when I was a child I 
couldn't draw on the line. My printing was terrible. They said to my parents, she's a lovely girl, but don't sort of, you know, expect too much. She might be to get a nice job in a local shop or down the road or something like that, not to disrespect anybody in any of those kind of jobs, but they were kind of saying that I wouldn't have other choices. And I think it was just being a kid who thought a bit differently and didn't do things in a sort of typical way meant it took me a long time to kind of even think that I could could do that. It didn't occur to me that I could particularly be a researcher or kind of contribute in that space. Even though, you know, I come from a Pākehā background, people in my family have been to university and things, but when I did come to university and I studied psychology, I got the, I, I was looking back the other day and I got the top scholar prize for a few years in a row and I'm like, why didn't I think I could carry on doing that? It's extraordinary how those kind of early beliefs stick around. So I think the biggest challenge for me was thinking I had a right to be there and I could make a contribution in that space. Yeah. What would you say to a young researcher setting out? Setting out, um, find some great people and find um, stuff that you think that you get excited about that you feel can make a difference that has meaning for you in some way. And your story seems to be a good one for young people in general who may not have followed the obvious straight line from school to university yeah. and have wandered off that they can if they so want do so later there are you know there are opportunities further down the track absolutely I feel like you know all that stuff of dream the dream and you can be this or think ahead about what you can be I so didn't do that I just sort of meandered around exploring and kind of going well this would be interesting or what would happen if we did that and in each place I guess I was really seeking to understand what was going on and how could we change it Wellington Faculty of Health is a relatively new faculty at Tarangawaka. Must have been satisfying to have seen your first graduates go through in the past couple of years, is it? Yes. Absolutely, it really has been. So we started the Bachelor of Health degree a few years ago. We've had um, the first ones coming through now and they have been getting really interesting jobs or going on to do really interesting research. People have gone into jobs like sexuality educator, equity advisor for a health board, emergency planning roles, people working in the Department of Corrections and so on. So they've kind of gone into this really broad array of really interesting opportunities actually around using those skills about understanding health, understanding equity, kind of wanting to make a difference and be involved in communities. So yes, it's absolutely exciting. We kind of hoped and we expected that the Bachelor of Health degree would lead places and give people opportunities, but you never really know until you actually see it happen and it's really great to see those young people going into amazing jobs, actually. How does the Wellington Faculty of Health differ from the faculties of health at other universities around New Zealand? So Auckland and Otago have big medical schools and they have had uh, other areas of health growing and, and being affiliated to that and coming out from that. Our Faculty of Health has got a strong focus on humanities, governance, culture and equity and this kind of broad understanding of health and wellbeing. So it's a kind of broader, more public policy kind of focused thing uh, about how do we have real world impact, which the others do too, but they're often focused on uh, medicine and kind of clinical skills. That said, the other area of difference is we have health psychology, which newer area in New Zealand, we're the only university who teaches that at an undergraduate level. So that's a pathway into working with people about their physical and mental health and wellbeing and how they, how they work together, as well as that kind of research area.
And we have a strong sort of health informatics, digital health uh, grouping as well. Researchers in universities teach, mm-hmm. and that's the unique thing about research-led universities, that the teaching is impacted by the research as well as the rest of us from the, your findings. How does your research impact your students when you're teaching them? What do you think it adds to the teaching and learning experience? So one of the things I love to do is if I've been asked to talk to the Commissioner for Children or Ministry of Health or any of those places is take students with me. They've got really valuable insights as young people, uh, as students of health, and they can come along and be part of those quite high-level conversations and, and hear and be influenced by those kind of decisions. They can help us understand what are the barriers to mental health and wellbeing with young people. They can look at the research, they can critique it, they can help us kind of shape it and I really enjoy that process of working with young people who really care about health and well-being who kind of want to make a difference and who are developing the skills to do that it's a it's a sort of neat opportunity working in youth health you're often trying to take a youth development approach and involving young people in leadership and in making decisions in everything you do and actually teaching young people not all young people but mostly the young people about health and well-being lets you lets you do that lets you see them grow lets you support them to develop and allows you to kind of influence the research. I would imagine that you have quite a lot of connections in the city and that it's probably very useful being here at the centre of government, if nowhere else, for the work that you're doing. So being part of Wellington is, is absolutely fantastic. One, I really enjoy Wellington. It's a fun city to live in. You meet people, you can go places easily. There's lots happening. It's a very lively, uh, enjoyable city. And from the research angle, it's exciting being close to government and it's exciting being in a city that's big enough to have digital partners and research partners and mental health people, but small enough that you can still all talk to each other and kind of connect uh, and being able to be involved in government and decision making and have students go straight into those those kinds of jobs is an extraordinary opportunity. And now two years graduated, in a few years they'll be in the positions that you'll be knocking on their doors. Absolutely. I have one who's a senior advisor in Tahiringa Haora overseeing updates on the lowdown and depression.org and she's using her skills and practice right now and helping to shape things in Aotearoa New Zealand in the very space that she was doing her degree about. So, yeah, it's nice to see. It must be nice knowing that the people that you've taught as well as the people that you've shown your research to, you know, that they're, they're, they've now absorbed what you're saying, you know, the findings that you've had, and it's uh, becoming more and more embedded. It's not you having to knock on people's doors and say, this is something that you should be doing. It's that they actually have that widespread understanding. Yeah, and I think, you know, to me, young people absolutely can be part of the solution and they are being part of the solution and it's partly about sharing sharing those things. Associate Professor Terry Fleming, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Guy. And I guess if I could say thank you to our audience and know that if you're interested in youth mental health and wellbeing, you can be part of the solution too. There are lots of opportunities to make a difference. Thank you. Thank you for listening. This podcast is part of the Moranga AKI series that dives into some of the world-leading research at Tuharingawaka, Victoria University of Wellington. Tena Koto Katoa. To stay up to date with our latest podcasts, subscribe using your preferred podcast provider. 
Thank you to Te Koki School of Music alumni Stefan Patton and Kenyon Shanky for the use of their music. From Te Heringa Waka, Victoria University of Wellington, Haere rā.